In our last service, we concluded the end of chapter 41, the book of Genesis. Tonight, we'd like to look at chapter 42. In a little review, we have found that Joseph was 17 years old as we begin to read about him in Genesis chapter 37. We find that Joseph, in more ways, perhaps any other Old Testament character, is a picture and type of the Lord Jesus Christ. We find that when Joseph went to be with his brethren, they did not receive him. Just like we read in John chapter 1, verse 11, where the Lord Jesus Christ came to his own, his own received him not. We find where they envied him, where they hated him. Uh, we see how they mistreated him, how he was placed into a pit and eventually sold to the Ishmaelites, which then took him down to Egypt to the Gentile people. And look at the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, we see likewise. Again, as he came to his own, his own received him not. They envied him. They hated him. We find where they mistreated him. And then he was sold, you might say, to the Gentiles, the Roman Empire at that time, Roman authorities, and where he was crucified and placed into a barred tomb. We find that Joseph, after being in Egypt, uh, wound up being a servant in the household of Potiphar, only to be falsely accused by false witnesses. He was condemned and put into a prison. But then we find God in his marvelous power and also in his providence uh, delivered Joseph out of the prison and exalted him. We find where the Lord Jesus Christ was delivered by his father from the prisoner of the grave and highly exalted to the right hand of the majesty on high. We, as we studied chapter 41 and saw the end of it, we found where Joseph now has been put in next to Pharaoh in, in terms of authority throughout all the land of Egypt. He's in charge of managing the land because the Lord has sent seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. Uh, we find where Joseph had properly interpreted that dream that God gave unto Pharaoh. As a result, Pharaoh recognized there was none as wise as Joseph. Picture, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ being wisdom personified. And therefore, he chose Joseph to be in charge of all the land next unto his throne. So as we finished reading chapter 41, we find where there were those from all nations coming to Egypt to buy corn. The famine was not restricted to the land of Egypt. The famine was in the land of Canaan. The famine was in all the known world of that particular day. So it affected the entire world's population. And the only place where there was corn for food was in Egypt. And God prospered those first seven years to such an extent, such a degree, that he would be able to feed all those who came to Egypt to buy food. There was only one source of food, and that was Joseph, who's a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, as the bread of life. We find him presented to us in John chapter 6, verse 35, when he declared to those on that occasion, I am the bread of life It came down from heaven. Joseph was that bread of life from the standpoint that he was in charge of distributing food to all who came to Egypt to him to buy food. Now, the Bible tells us that grain was stored in various cities and there was numerous officers that were put in charge of these cities to take care of the grain transactions. And uh, I want you to remember that. Now, in sharp contrast to that, we find chapter 42 opening up, and we have now no longer a scene of Joseph in Egypt as the bread of life, but now we find Jacob and his sons back in the land of Canaan. Now, 
Jacob and his sons in Canaan are facing the famine like everybody else. And apparently the supply is getting very small. So we find that Jacob looks upon his sons in Genesis chapter 43, 42 in verse 1. Now when Jacob saw that there was corn in Egypt, which says he saw there was corn in Egypt, it simply means he understood there was corn in Egypt. Uh, one, one way or the other, he understood there was corn in Egypt. You could get down to Egypt, you could buy corn. And he looked upon his sons and he says, why do you look one upon another? I take it by this that his sons didn't know what to do. They were just looking at one another. The situation was getting dire. The famine was severe. Uh, the supply of food for them and their families was getting very scarce. And we make, find no mention here where they look to God, even Jacob. You know, in Psalms uh, 121, verse 1, uh, David says, I look unto the hills which cometh my help. My help cometh the Lord that made heaven and earth. But there's no record here where Jacob looks to the Lord. There's no record where his sons are looking to the Lord. In fact, Jacob is, looks at his sons and there's no help there. So Jacob tells his sons to arise and go down to Egypt to buy corn. Now his sons are all married. They all have their own families. But Jacob is still the patriarch. Jacob is still in control of the people of Israel at this particular time. So the Bible tells us that's what the sons did. We look in verse 3. And Joseph's ten brethren went down to buy corn in Egypt. As usual, when you read anywhere in the Bible about going to Egypt, you will always read where you go down. Just always remember that. Egypt's a picture of the world. Egypt is a picture of bondage. It's a picture of darkness. It's a picture of sin and idolatry and things. And when you go to Egypt, you go down. But to get corn, in this case, they have to go down into Egypt. Now, if you look in Psalms 105, verses 16 and 17, you'll find where the Bible says that God commanded the famine. God called for a famine. This is the third famine we read about in Scripture. There was a famine in the days of Jacob's father Isaac. There was a famine in the days of his grandfather Abraham. Go back to Genesis 12 when God calls Abraham out of the land of the early, uh, Chaldees to go down to the land of Canaan, a land that he would show him. Once he gets down there, there was a famine. When the famine came, what did, Jacob, uh, what did Abraham do? He went down to Egypt. <laughs> in Genesis 26.1, we find in the days of Isaac that a famine was in the land. And this was a different famine, we're told in the first verse, than the first famine. And Isaac is going to leave the land, but as he starts to go down to Egypt, he's stopped by the Lord in a place called Gerar. And God told him to go no further, go not into the land of Egypt. But there was a famine in the days of Abraham, one in the days of Isaac, and now one in the days of Jacob. Famines are going to come, whether it be natural famines or spiritual famines. It's what we do when the famine comes that makes all the difference, right? So Jacob here is going to send his 10 sons. Now he's got 11, but he's not going to allow Benjamin to go. Joseph, of course, was the son of his old age, and he gave him a coat of many colors. And I think Jacob made a mistake as a father by very clearly showing favoritism <laughs> toward Joseph and Benjamin over the other ten sons. I think that played a factor in some of the sons' reaction to Joseph. But here we find he's not going to send Benjamin. He's going to keep Benjamin. But he is going to send the other ten. Now, it was about 250 to 300 miles from Canaan down to Egypt. It'd be a long journey. 
These may be some of the factors why, why um, Jacob's sons had not mentioned anything about it themselves. It would not be an easy trip. It would not be a quick trip. It would be a long trip in terms of distance, a long trip in terms of time. It would take about six weeks to go down to Egypt and back by the means of transportation in that particular day. Also, it would not be an easy trip. The standpoint, there was, it was always a dangerous trip when you traveled in that day. There was always thieves or always uh, evil people uh, looking to try to ambush people when they were taking long journeys. So it would be a dangerous trip. And then when they got there, how would they be treated? They'd be foreigners. They'd be strangers. How would they be treated? But the last reason I'm going to give you might be the most important. To go to Egypt means they would have to go down to a place where they saw their son Joseph, when they saw him to the Ishmaelites, was being taken to. The last view they have of Joseph, up to this point, and it's been about 22 years prior to this. About 22 years has passed. What's the last view they had of Joseph when they saw him to the Ishmaelites? Which direction did Ishmaelites go? They went to Egypt. That might still be in their minds. The last few of their brother they sold was him going with Ishmaelites down into Egypt. But these are some of the factors that were involved. But desperate times calls for desperate measures. And times are getting desperate. The food supply is getting very, very scarce. And Jacob commands his sons to go. And so they do. Verse uh, Chapter 42 and verse 5. And the sons of Israel came to buy corn among those that came. There were others down there to buy corn as well as them. For the famine was in the land of Canaan. And Joseph was the governor over the land. If you read Matthew chapter 2 verse 6, you'll see where the writer states the fulfillment of a prophecy in the Old Testament found in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. When he says, And thou Bethlehem, though thou art the least among uh, all the uh, you know, the Bethlehems that was in the land in that day says, For out of thee shall come forth he that shall rule my people. And Matthew 2 6 says, It was a governor who shall govern my people. Now, a governor governs, right? I mean, that's, that's what the word means. A governor's responsibility is to govern. We have 50 states, we have 50 governors. Every state's got a governor. His responsibility is to govern that state, be the leader in that. And Joseph is the governor in the land of Egypt. According to Matthew 2, 6, the Lord Jesus Christ came forth as a governor. Look in Isaiah 9 and 6. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. His name shall call Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. There's never been one who governed greater than Jesus. He governed in righteousness, did he not? He governed with wisdom. He never made a mistake. He never made a, a wrong decision. He's wisdom personified. He's the governor of all governors. Now, we like to refer to him as Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And rarely do we ever mention Matthew 2, 6. That tells us he came forth as a governor to govern his people. He governs this universe in which we are part of. He governs all aspects of his creation. So Joseph is the governor and he it was that sold to all the people of the land. That is, all who come to buy. That's another expression of the word all. All who came to buy, all who had money, the nations that were represented. And Joseph's brethren came and bowed down themselves before him with their faces to the earth. 
That reminds you of anything? Remember back in Genesis chapter 37 when Joseph had the two dreams? One of them was he was in the field biting his sheaves and he had stood upright and then there were other 11 sheaves that bowed down to his sheaf. And then there was a sun and the moon and 11 stars and they were all to bow down to him. That's come to pass. As now has come to pass. Now let's see a contrast between those two scenes in Genesis 37 and the one here in Genesis 42. In Genesis 37, the dreams are given. Joseph reveals the dreams. His brethren envy him. They hate him. When they see him afar off, they recognize him and they conspire against him. And they say, we will put him into some pit and we will say that some beast hath devoured him. All right. And when they put him in that pit, we find where they sat by that pit and they ate and they drank while Joseph was in that pit with nothing to eat and nothing to drink. The tables have turned. The tables have turned, have they not? All right, now they come. And here's what they said also about that. And they said, now we'll see what this dreamer saith. The very idea that we one day would bow down to him. That's what they're saying there. And they call him a dreamer. Well, he did dream them, but God gave him these dreams. And now they have bowed down, but something is not quite right yet because only 10 are bowing down and God showed 11. That will happen later. But at least we see at this moment, 10, in fact, the 10 who conspired against him. I don't think Benjamin was in on that. <laughs> These 10 that conspired against him and did what they did unto him are now bowing before him. He's the governor of the land. It is Joseph who has the bread, and they have none. It is Joseph now who's in control, and Joseph is in charge. So how did they come to bow before Joseph? Remember what I told you a while ago? You read where he stored the grain in various cities, not just one city. And there were officers that were assigned over all the other cities. It's certainly possible his ten brethren could have come to a different city and come before a different officer in order to, you know, do this transaction for the grain. Yeah, I think it's clear and obvious that Joseph could not have been in charge of every transaction that took place. Now, he was in charge over all the transactions, but personally, he could, didn't have the time, obviously, to be involved in every transaction. His officers took care of a great deal of that work. But somehow, some way, those brothers wind up with Joseph. <laughs> Again, that's just simply an example of God's marvelous providence. God's marvelous providence and the fulfillment of what God had shown Joseph earlier, about 22 years earlier. This has taken place two years into the seven years of famine. You had the seven years of plenty, then the seven years of famine take place. Now, just before the seven years of plenty end, as we remember, I hope you remember, last time, Joseph is given a wife, and he has two sons by his wife. He names them Manasseh and Ephraim, which means God hath made me fruitful in the land of my affliction, and God hath made me forget all my toil. I tried to emphasize the only way that you can be fruitful as a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, you've got to have a good forgetter, because toils are going to come your way, I can assure you that. And sometimes... It comes unjustly. You just got to forget it or you will not be fruitful. 
It'll, it'll cause the fruit to drop on the vine, so to speak. It's a miracle, isn't it, that Joseph could be fruitful in the land of his affliction with all he had gone through. But we might see more about that a little bit later. So they come and they bow down before Joseph, who is the governor of the land, with their faces to the earth. And Joseph saw his brethren, and he knew them, but made himself strange unto them, and spake roughly unto them. And he said unto them, Which come ye? And they said, From the land of Canaan to buy food. Now, when chapter 37 ends, you find Joseph's brethren lying and deceiving their father. But starting here, you're going to find them telling the truth. They did come from Canaan. They did come to buy food. But the Bible says that Joseph knew them and recognized them. And the next verse will tell us that they knew him not. But let's look back at verse 7. Joseph saw his brother and he knew them and made himself strange unto them. Does that remind you a little bit about the Lord Jesus Christ at times? Remember after his resurrection in John chapter 20 where Mary Magdalene came to the sepulchre the first day of the week and she found it empty and she was weeping and Jesus came from behind her and said, Woman, why weepest thou? And she thought he was the gardener. She had seen him many times. He cast out seven devils. But on this occasion, at this moment, she doesn't recognize that he's the Christ. In Luke chapter 24, the Lord is walking the road to Emmaus with two of the disciples. But the Bible says their eyes were holding. They were not able to recognize the Lord Jesus Christ. His identity was hidden from them. He made himself strange, in other words, unto them. And so we see Joseph doing the same thing. And Joseph knew his brethren, but they knew him not. Now, from a human perspective, think about it a little bit. It's been 22 years, somewhere in that range, since Joseph's brethren has seen Joseph. Now, he recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. Now, a 17-year-old boy can change a lot in 22 years. That makes him at least 39 years of age at this particular point. Also, he was shaven, and the Hebrews didn't shave, but the Egyptians did. He's got on Egyptian clothing. He's using Egyptian language. He's talking to an interpreter. So, and they're not, certainly not expecting to find Joseph. They think Joseph is dead. In fact, the language later on will indicate that. They thought Joseph was dead, so they were not anticipating seeing Joseph. And now they're standing before their, their brother, who the last time they saw him was in the hands of the Ishmaelites going down to the land of Egypt. And their thoughts, thoughts are, we will never see him again. Now they're standing before him or bowed before him. All right. It says that Joseph knew them, but they knew him not. There's a doctrinal lesson in this, right? By nature, we do not know God. I don't care how much teaching you get, how much preaching you hear, you will never know God until God enables you to know him in regeneration. John 6, 44 and 45, the Lord Jesus Christ said, No man can come to me except the Father who sent me, draw him, and I'll raise him up again at the last day. As it's written in the prophets, they shall all be taught of God. The teaching I'm talking about here, God has to teach it. I can't teach it. I can teach you about God, but I can't teach you to know God. Only God can, you see. And so G uh, Joseph knows them, but they don't know him. And will not know him until later on when he will, and we don't want to get ahead of ourselves here, <laughs> that might be a couple services down the road, uh, when he will reveal himself unto them. Look in Matthew eleven twenty-five through 27. Jesus prays in thanksgiving to the Father, and he says, Father, I thank you, you've hid these things from the wise and prudent, and you have to reveal them unto babes. 
For even so, Father, it seemed good in thy sight. He said, For no man knoweth the Son except the Father, and no man knoweth the Father except the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. It takes the revelation of God. That first revelation comes in the work of the new birth when a person is regenerated and God puts his divine nature within. That enables you to know God. But God's already known you. Look in 2 Timothy 2.19. The foundation of God stands sure having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are his. These are Joseph's brethren. He knows them. You know the Bible calls us the brethren of Christ. You go to Hebrews 2.9. We see Jesus made a little lower than the angels, the suffering of death, crowned with honor and glory, that he by the grace of God might taste death for every man. For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. All right? For which cause he's not ashamed to call them what? Brethren. That's why we call each other brethren and sisters. Because that shows a spiritual connection, a spiritual relationship that we have. And we have a spiritual relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not ashamed to call us brethren. And we should not be ashamed to call each other and one another brethren, right? So Joseph knows them, but they do not know Joseph. Now here comes some, as Joseph begins to deal with them, he maybe thinks in the way he dealt with them that I don't fully understand. But I know this, as a type of the Lord Jesus Christ, he dealt with them with wisdom. Now in the book of Romans, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Paul said, Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and perfect and acceptable will of God. God's will, with three things about his will, we're told here. We're told his will is good. There's nothing about God's will that's not good. <laughs> Everything about God's will is good. His will is perfect. There's nothing about God's will less than being perfect. And his will is acceptable. It should be acceptable to me and to you. I should be willing to accept the will of God whether I fully understand it or not. As I read here in, you know, in this chapter and later on how Joseph dealt with his brethren, I think it becomes very clear that he dealt with them the way he did to eventually bring them to a point of repentance and acknowledgement of their wrongdoing and how they mistreated him and also lied to see their father. And he did it by, I believe, the wisdom that God gave unto him. Let's notice this. Joseph remembered the dreams. Might have been over 22 years, but Joseph hadn't forgotten them. <laughs> he remembers them. Which he dreamed of them and said of them, you're spies. He's going to charge them with being spies four different times. And each time they're going to respond by saying that they're true men and they're not spies. He says, verse 12, nay, but to see the nakedness of the land you're come. Well, Joseph knew that wasn't the case. And they said, Thy servants are twelve brethren, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is not. What did Joseph find out about that? Joseph found out his father still living. Joseph found out his brother Benjamin is still living. With the way he's dealing with them, he's gaining information that he no doubt was very desirous to know of. You know, it, made, it must have made his heart feel good when they said, we're the son of one man. Now, they were not the son of one woman. They had different mothers. Benjamin and Joseph had one mother, Rachel, but there was Leah, then the, 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 uh, you know, her handmaid, and, and uh, Rachel's handmaid. There was four women that brought forth these 12 sons, they, but they had one father. 
We're the sons of one man, not one woman, but one man. And he tells Joseph here that he's okay, and he's got a brother, and one is not, and the one is not is who? Who? It's Joseph. <laughs> Joseph knows when they say one is not, they're talking about me, you know, but they have no idea who they're talking to. Joseph knows them, they don't know him. He knows what they're saying, but they don't realize who they're saying it to. They're saying it to their brother. And Joseph said unto them, That is it that I spake unto you, saying, You're spies. Hereby you shall be proved by the life of Pharaoh. You shall not go forth hence, except your youngest brother come hither. Now Joseph wants to see Benjamin. And he's laying down a plan here. He says, send one of you and let him fetch your brother and you shall be kept in prison. That your words may be proved whether there be any truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you're spies. And he put them all together into ward three days. That word ward means they were put in custody. It was not like the prison Joseph was in. They're, they're in a prison, but not like Joseph was in. It's kind of like house arrest. They were not able to go anywhere for three days. Soldiers watched over them. Soldiers guarded them. And when you read three days in the Bible, you're going to read about a period of time uh, that usually signifies a sufficient and complete period of time for something to take place. For example, one of the ten plagues in the land of Egypt was a plague of darkness. How long did it last? It lasted three days. When Israel got ready to cross Jordan's River, they sat there when they got there before they crossed for three days. He gave them time to look, time to contemplate what was before them, you see. Well, we find Jonah in the belly of the whale for how long? <laughs> three days. The Lord Jesus Christ in the heart of the earth for how long? Three days. Paul, when he was Saul of Tarsus in Acts chapter 9, when the Lord struck him down, his eyes were closed where he could not see. He was blinded and he was that way for how long? For three days. The list is lengthy. I just gave you just a, a few of them, okay? The list is very lengthy. So he puts them in there for three days. Now for three days, they get to think about what they had done. And for three days, he gets to think about what he's going to do. That's the difference. Because the plan is going to change. Look at verse 19. If ye be true men, let one of your brethren be bound in the house of your prison. Go ye carry corn for the famine of your houses. Joseph cares about his household. Joseph cares about his brother and their families and his father and Benjamin. And he's going to allow them to carry corn back. He said, but bring your youngest brother unto me, so shall your words be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. They're in agreement with it. Now we notice, beginning in verse 21, something very interesting about these ten brethren. And they said one to another, we are verily guilty concerning our brother. This is the first time they've acknowledged anything about their wrongdoing, but they say we're guilty concerning our brother and that we saw the anguish of his soul. That tells me when Joseph was in that pit that he spoke to them, he cried out to them, and they ignored him. We saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us, and we would not hear. Therefore is this distress come upon us. They were beginning to feel the guilt and begin to feel like now this is happening to us because what we did over 22 years ago. And Reuben answered them saying, Spake I not unto you, saying, Do not sin against the child? 
and you would not hear. Therefore, behold, also his blood is required. Now, if you go back to Genesis 37, you'll find their first intent was to slay Joseph, but Reuben talked them out of it and was going to return him back to the father. But before he could, he was sold to the Ishmaelites. And they knew not that Joseph understood them, for he spake to them by an interpreter. Joseph, hearing everything they say, <laughs> You know, God, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ knows everything we say. The Lord Jesus Christ understands everything there is about us. He, he knows our thoughts. He knows our feelings. He knows our emotions. He knows uh, there's nothing about us that he does not know. And they're talking about all of this, and Joseph is listening to them. He's the one they're talking about. But they don't know he understands anything they say. They still think he's an Egyptian. They still think that he is simply the governor of the land, which he is, but has no idea he's Joseph. Verse 24, and he turned himself about from them and wept and returned to them again and communed with them and took from them Simeon and bound him before their eyes. Let's think about it just for a moment. It is hard, it's difficult, is it not, to imagine what was going through the mind of Joseph, the emotions he was having, the feelings he was having. Here's his brothers in the flesh. The last time he had any, any interaction with them, they despised him and hated him and envied him and conspired to actually take his life at one point. And now they're right there in front of him. He's the governor of the land. He has the power to put them in prison. He has the power to have them slain. He has the power to throw them in jail and throw away the key, as the old saying is. He's got that power and that authority. But see, his experiences did not bring about bitterness See, your experiences in life, when, when you go through some hard times, they can make you bitter or they can make you better. They made Joseph better. But I've seen people that were made bitter by their experiences. Joseph is not that way. Joseph, anything, is made better. He's got the power to do the things I just mentioned, but he's not going to do that. He weeps. The Lord Jesus Christ was a man that wept, wasn't he? Some people, you know, if you're on a Jeopardy and you've got this Bible question, what's the shortest verse in the Bible? Uh, maybe they'd get it, maybe they wouldn't. <laughs> uh, John eleven thirty five. the Bible says, Jesus wept. Two words, shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept at the grave of Lazarus. While the word wept is not used, if you go to the last part of Luke, uh, Matthew, rather, chapter 23, you'll find where the Lord Jesus Christ looked over Jerusalem. He said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How awful would I gather this, a hen gather her chickens under her wings, and you would not. It broke the heart, I believe, of the Lord Jesus Christ to be despised and rejected as he was by a people that had been formed and created by his Father. He was the promised Messiah. He came fulfilling all Old Testament verses of Scripture, and yet they rejected him, despised him, and he said, I would have gathered you like a hen does her chickens under her wings, just taking and protecting them and taking care of them, but you would not. Hebrews 5 and 7, it says, With crying and strong tears and supplications, we find where the Lord Jesus Christ cried to the Father who was able to save him from death. Now notice he didn't say he was able to save him from dying. Of course, he did have the power, but it was not God's will to do that. Jesus Christ wouldn't die, but the Father would save him from death. He would bless him to recover from death. He would raise him from death, right? So we find the Lord mentioned here in Hebrews 5 and 7 as crying with great tears and, and, and supplications in the spirit. Joseph wept. The Lord Jesus Christ was a man of compassion, and he wept. 
Verse 25, Then Joseph commanded to fill their sacks with corn and restore every man's money in his sack, and to give them provision for the way. And thus did he unto them. Do you believe he's treating them far better than they treated him? <laughs> Do you believe that the Lord treats you far better than you treat him? Do you believe that the Lord is gracious to you when you uh, aren't thankful as you ought to be? You think the Lord uh, takes care of you uh, when uh, only in times when we deserve it, if that's ever a time we deserve it? I believe every day we do not deserve the grace of God, but yet God is gracious. And we find Joseph here with the power and authority to throw his brother into jail, throw the key away, but instead of doing that, he fills every man's sack with corn. He provides for them. And on top of that, he puts the money back in the sack. <laughs> you know what that tells me? It tells me that eternal life and spiritual blessings cannot be bought with money. They came to Egypt. The word buy is used five times in the early verses of this chapter here. They came to Egypt to buy corn, brought their money, brought their means, but Joseph is going to give them their food and send them back and not going to take a dime from them. Ephesians 2 8, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, lest, um, not of works, lest any man uh, should boast. Romans 6 and 33, for the wage of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. 2 Corinthians 9 and 15, Paul says, but thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. I noticed this uh, just recently in reading John chapter 4. When Jesus goes to Samaria and sits on Jacob's well and has that conversation with the Samaritan woman. And he says, give me uh, a drink. She says, how is it thou being a Jew, ask me a Samaritan to give you a drink because the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And the Lord Jesus Christ said unto her, if thou knewest the gift of God. He didn't say if you knew who I was or if you knew I was Jesus. He said if you knew who the gift of God was. He said, I'm the gift of God. <laughs> Jesus Christ is the gift of God, is he not? A gift we don't deserve. Isaiah 55, 1, the writer says, Ho, every one of you that thirsted, come you to the waters, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Notice, when you come to the waters, you come to buy, but silver and gold are not going to do you any good. Every one of you that thirsty. See, that text is not to the non-thirsty, it's to the thirsty. If you are thirsty, here's a text directed straight to you. Oh, everyone that thirsteth, come ye where? To the waters. That's where you would get your thirst quenched, right? To the waters. Well, who is the waters? It's Jesus Christ. He's a fountain of living waters. Oh, everyone of you that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. Come buy wine and milk without money, without price. Money's not going to get it. <laughs> Read Psalms 40, uh, 49, verses 6 and 7. He says, those that boast of their uh, wealth and, and uh, you know, and the uh, multitude of their riches, they can by no means redeem their brother, for their soul is precious in his sight. He says, those who have a multitude of riches, those who boast of their, their wealth, he says, they can by no means, no matter how wealthy they are, they cannot redeem their brother because it's not, redemption not based upon silver and gold, it's based upon the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Right? He puts the money back in the sack. <laughs> it's it's going to create some, <laughs> some uh, mysterious feelings in these brethren in just a little bit. <laughs> and they laded their asses with the corn and departed thence. And as one of them opened his sack to give his ass provender in the end, he espied his money, and behold, it was in the sack's mouth. 
And he said to his brother, my money's restored, and lo, it's even in my sack. Can you imagine that? He opens the sack, and there's his money. And he said to his brother, my money is restored, and lo, it is even in my sack. And the heart failed them. In other words, it's hard to imagine the feeling they had in their heart when they realized what has happened. No doubt they probably thought, well, they're probably on their way now to overtake us. They probably found out they don't have the money, that we've kept the money, which they didn't. They knew they were innocent in this. This is one thing they were innocent in. <laughs> They had not purposely put their money back in the sack. They paid for that corn, but Joseph put it back in there and they didn't know it. I tell you, when you've been made to feel to be a sinner by the grace of God, and you come to the realization that salvation is by the grace of God, I want you to take a look at your sack and I guarantee you your money will still be in there. And you might think, well, I, I know I've got to do something. Well, we, we are to, then, oh, we should obey the Lord, keep his commandments, serve him. Uh, see, there's uh, the people's view this day and age of true discipleship is very shallow. It is very shallow. There is a cost involved in discipleship. But when it comes to our home in heaven, my friends, I can assure you that inheritance and glory is not based upon silver and gold. It is not based upon money. The money will always be back in the neck of the sack. Their heart failed them, and they were afraid, saying one to another, What is this that God hath done unto us? <laughs> what is this that God hath done? They don't understand how that money got back in the sack. And so notice so far their feelings. They, they, they saw anguish. Uh, they experienced anguish. They experienced guilt. They experienced distress. Uh, their heart has failed them. Uh, they, they believe that God is doing this to them. This is God's judgment upon them. In the beginning of verse 29, you'll find where they come back to the land of Canaan. They've completed their journey. And they come to Jacob, their father, and they tell him. Just You can read the following verses. We won't take time to do that. But they tell him the complete truth of what took place in their journey. I mean, they're telling the truth again. They got their facts straight. How does Jacob react to this? See, they left one man behind them. His name was Simeon. I think I may have overlooked uh, that a while ago. When, when he changed his plan, when Joseph changed the plan, instead of having one man go back, he's going to send nine of them back, and one's going to stay. Simeon. When they get back, they tell their father Jacob everything that had happened. And then in verse 35, it says, It came to pass that they emptied their sacks, and behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when both they and their father saw the bundles of money, <laughs> they were afraid. That's the reaction. That's, that's what their emotion was when they realized this. And Jacob, their father, said unto them, verse 36, Me have ye bereaved of my children. Joseph is not, and Simeon is not. And you will take Benjamin away. All these things are against me. You ever been there? All these things are against me. He's lost Joseph. They left Simeon in Egypt. They want to take Benjamin back down there. But he's not going to allow them in the beginning to do that. Notice what he says, verses 37 and 38. And Reuben spake unto his father, saying, Slay my two sons if I bring him not to thee. Deliver him into my hand, and I'll bring him to thee again. Now this was foolishness we heart uh, on behalf of Reuben here. 
Did he check with those two sons? <laughs> Did he check with the mother of those two sons? What good would that do to slay his two sons if he didn't bring Benjamin back? And he said, my son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead and he's left alone. If mischief befall him by the way in which ye go, then shall ye bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to the grave. You got a feel for this man, don't you? Jacob at this time. I think I can understand why he would make the statement we find in verse 36, all these things are against me. I want you to know tonight that there are a lot of things against you. The world in which we live is obviously against you. It's anti-God, anti-Christ, anti-Christianity. Satan himself is your adversary. 1 Peter 5 and 7, be sober, be visually sober for your adversary, the devil. We walked about seeking whom he can devour, will devour. He's certainly against you. Your human nature is a sinful nature, and it's certainly against you. It's always trying to go contrary and opposite of how the Spirit would lead you. It's against you. And when your, when your nature and the devil and the world all team up, I think you can feel like old Jacob. All things are against me. <laughs> but you know, it'd been a good time for a friend to come along and put his arm around old Jacob. Say, Jacob, you may feel this way, but let me just remind you about something. You remember that time you were fleeing your brother Esau? And God came to you in a dream and you saw a ladder extending from heaven to earth and angels ascending and descending upon that ladder. You remember that? You remember God speaking into you and saying, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. You remember that? Do you remember when God said, uh, as I was with your father and grandfather Isaac and Abraham, I'll be with you. And the very land that you're laying on right now shall belong to your seed. You remember God telling you all of that? So while these things may be against you, God Almighty is for you. Been a good time for a friend right there, wouldn't it? And that friend comes along, puts his arm around him once again, and begins to talk to him a little bit, reminding him of the blessings he'd received at the hand of God, reminding him when he laid down that night, put his head on a, on a rock for a pillow. Uh, the Lord appeared to him the next night, my friends, he took that rock and he erected it for a pillar and said, this is, I'm going to call this place Bethel, which is the house of God. He said, God was in this place and I knew it not. Jacob, don't forget that. And uh, I'll close tonight with this. All things are against me. That's what Jacob said. All things are against me. But I want to see what the Apostle Paul said in Romans 8, 28. And all things work together for good to them who are the call of God, who love God, who are the call of God according to his purpose. Jacob said, all things are against me. Paul says, all things are for me. But now the all things Paul has in consideration is not all the evil and the wickedness and the failures and the faults and the shortcomings of man here. It's the things related in verses 29 and 30 when he said, Woe for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And over whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And over he called, them he also justified. And over justified, them he also glorified. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Jacob, God has been for you for a long time. All these things may seem to be working against you, but the God of glory foreknew you and chose you and elected you and called you by his grace. And one day you'll be with God in glory. I don't want you to ever forget the things of this old world right here that causes us to get so cast down and get in the valley of despair to where we might just think, God, I believe everything is working against me. It may seem that way, but I'm telling you there are some things working for you and things working for you 
you is going to land you in a place called glory some sweet day. Don't let the things of this world cause you to forget that great truth. Amen. Lord willing, we'll pick up in Genesis 43 <laughs> in two weeks from now.